0: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Sean Cotter. Sean is a translator and professor of literature and translation at the University of Texas. His translation of Solenoid is out now through Deep Bell and welcome to the show, Sean.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Do you want to tell us about life in Dallas and the University of Texas and your work there?
1: Yeah, so I'm at the University of Texas at Dallas. This is different from the uh, flagship campus in Austin. And uh, it's, a, it's a great place to be. I mean, Dallas is a big booming place um it's going to be bigger than chicago in a couple of years Uh, there's at least 270 languages spoken in the area so it has a it's a good place to be thinking about translation and working across languages
0: and so you teach your undergrads translation and you teach uh, also comparative literature do you want to tell us about uh, your teaching role
1: yeah so i teach um Uh, On the graduate level, we have a PhD in literature and you can do translations, literary translations as part of that, along with a critical component as part of your dissertation or part of your master's degree. Now we have certificates in translation that you can pursue as well. And so all my teaching there is on uh, history of translation, practical translation workshops for literary translation, and then um, critical approaches. So translation theory, but not how to do translation, but how to talk about translation. And then on the undergraduate level, I do comparative literature topics. I do, um, right now I'm teaching a class on Don Quixote. um, And Don Quixote compared to Flaubert and to Lawrence Stern and Spada Folk. And then I also teach on uh, continental modernisms. So avant-garde movements like futurism, dadaism, that type of thing.
0: That's so interesting. In terms of philosophy of translation, do you want to tell us a bit about how that works and I guess what your philosophy on translation is?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know if I've got anything quite so grand uh, as a philosophy on translation. Um, I think that translation is a you know it's a series of of never-ending choices um, where you are attempting to read the original and see as much as you can in the original text um, and you see 10,000 things right and then in translation you get to do 10 things or maybe 12. And so it's a process of deciding what you can do well, what parts of the work you want to prioritize, what you think the work is about, and um, using all the resources that you have in English uh, or whatever your language of translation is, including other languages, um, all the resources you have in order to create something
0: beautiful. Is there a way to tell if a translation is a good translation or a bad translation?
1: There's lots of ways. Yeah. There's lots of ways to approach the question. I mean, it's, it's the kind of question that translation gets that literature doesn't always get, Mm. you know, is there a way to tell a good book from a bad book? Um, sometimes the, the more, for me, the more interesting, um, questions are what kind of a translation is this? You know, what, what interpretation of the work is this, is this doing, you know, for example, if you look at the Lydia Davis translation of, um, of Bovary and teaching in that Don Quixote class I just mentioned, um, her translation strategy is to be kind of scrupulous with detail and um, be just kind of fascinated by the way the details are doled out to us over the course of a sentence. And there are other people that are not interested in that. Um, they're interested in kind of the uh, the romance of self-deception and, and Emma Bovary, and the prioritizing character over the the detail of style. And so you can tell you can tell those differences even um, that you can tell the translations are different when you're reading the English version. Um, you can also, of course, compare translations to the original language to various languages. There's lots of ways to get into it.
0: So at the moment, how many languages could you safely translate from you know another language into English?
1: I can translate from Romanian because I've lived longest in Romania and obviously studied Romanian the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also done translations from Spanish. Okay. I've got a, one coming out in a collection not too long um, in probably the next year.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, congratulations on the publication of Solenoid. Um, it's an astounding piece of work. It must be so nice to see it finally out there in the world.
1: It is, yeah. And it's, it's big enough to offer some protection to, um, you know, bullets or um, falling satellites or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, so it, so it has it is- usefulness beyond its uh, narrative.
0: how many years did it take you to translate this work
1: I'd say about two and a half years all told um I did three three versions before the one that I sent to the publisher and then there was two rounds of editing after that so it, it got a fair bit of attention and even now when I see quotes from it that folks are posting um I'm really excited that people are pulling out sentences from it but every one of them is a place where i would do things differently a second time
0: yeah (laughs) solenoid is not your first translation of catarescu you translated blinding the first book in the orbitor trilogy in 2013 for archipelago how did you discover catarescu and can you tell us a bit about him
1: uh i mean it it would be lamentable if i didn't discover catarescu he was um and i i only discovered him in the sense of like you know i encountered him to uh, use the the word for latin america right um so when i first started uh reading romanian literature he was already the most famous writer in romania in contemporary romanian letters so he started off as a poet and he had um been, uh, he came out with orbitor the, the, the romanian version of blinding um right i think it was 1996 So it was, I got to Romania in 1994. So yeah, he was already a celebrity at that time. And I got in touch with him um, early on. I did this kind of lamentably juvenile thing where um, an older translator was very gracious with me and gave me a list of um, addresses for contemporary Romanian writers, important people, and said that I should be sure to get permission to translate from them if I want to translate their works. And so I, I did but I did it in this way where i made a bunch of, I printed out a bunch of slips of paper that said, I'm Sean Cotter, I'm an aspiring translator. I would like to translate your work. And I didn't put, you know, click, you know, tick yes if you like me, tick no if you don't like me, but it felt kind of like junior high school. Mm-hmm. And I just wandered through Bucharest, putting these in people's mailboxes and otherwise getting them in the hands of authors. And um, I got amazingly generous responses from people who had no business giving me the time of day. And one of them was Cartarescu. But him, I didn't put it in his mailbox. I found um, I was staying with a family. The family's daughter was in school with somebody who was taking one of Cartarescu's classes at the university. And uh, so she arranged a meeting for us um, uh, You know, through that intermediary. We were supposed to meet at a pub down in the center of Bucharest. But uh, something went wrong. We missed each other. Um, so we didn't, we didn't actually meet face-to-face until much later after I'd done blinding.
0: Wow. Okay. In terms of Romanian literature, do you want to give us, I guess, a tiny taste of, of some of the other writers who were at, in that kind of avant-garde or, or contemporary scene on the Romanian uh, oh,
1: landscape? I, so uh, the Slovenian writer, Tomas Shalamun, um, he was once at a uh, Romanian festival and uh, he said that, you know, in terms of pure literary value and literary quantity, you know, all of it. Um, the only other country that for him was doing out Romania was Poland. Um, so that there's just incredible amounts of literature being produced in Romania. And there's, there's just so much, so much, that's good stuff. That's really hard to encapsulate it. You have um, works uh, all over prose, all over Memorial works really powerful poetry scene and a really exciting theater scene. Um, all happening at the same time. Um, And it's not just Bucharest, it's also Yash and um, Cluj and Timishwara. All these major centers have really interesting writers going on. It's difficult to summarize them in two or three words. Uh, The best thing to do is just to either pick up an anthology or to... Um, just go there and start wandering around and you're guaranteed to bump into a poet, especially if you close your eyes, and just kind of walk with your hands out in front of you in the middle of Bucharest, Mm -hmm. um, you're probably going to hit a a novelist or a playwright or somebody.
0: Do you want to theorize on why there's so many writers and poets uh, living in Romania?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's connected with um, the history of um, Central European countries. So it's undoubtedly true that under the communist period, uh, literature was super valued. Right. So this is a place. Where even when I got there, in 1994, um, I was, you know, uh, writing poetry and staying with a host family. And when the father found out that I wrote poetry, he treated me completely differently from then on. He would literally tiptoe past my door, like he was a huge guy with all his white hair sticking out and a big pot belly. And he would lean back and place his toes down one after the other to make sure that I wasn't being disturbed if I was writing poetry. Um, Great reference, great reference for poetry. I once took a cab to the bus to take me to the airport because I couldn't afford to take the cab all the way to the airport. And when the cabbie found out that I worked with poetry, he said, well, I'll take you all the way there for free if we just talk about poetry the whole time. Wow. So I think it's, it's connected with that, but it's connected, I mean, it goes back towards um, the way language works in 19th century um, self-determination movements from all of these former imperial, you know, Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman, Russian, uh, Prussian Empire, um, places where the, the way that you've pushed back against royalty, which usually didn't speak the language of the people that it governed, um, was to insist on the particularity of your language and the way you prove that the particular your language was particularly beautiful and powerful was by having um, a great national poet and so that was true in romania and then that same that nationalist ideology uh it took us all the way through the communist period and still around today
0: okay well do you want to tell us that story about how you became a translator of romanian and also a little bit about the romanian language and its origins and complexities
1: uh so, I became a translator essentially um, because I was just looking for a way to continue working with language and with foreign languages that I would just kind of been became fascinated by the differences between languages. Um, and uh, the the way that being in a foreign you know, what seems like a foreign place, it was just so engaging and um, enchanting. Uh, the thing where things seem different, and you are are just just life just feels richer when it's not the place where you grew up. I mean, in the best case scenario, obviously, because I got to, I chose to go there, I didn't um, I wasn't forced to, to leave my home. So I wanted to continue working with um, language, and I wanted to continue doing something that felt creative with language as well. So with writing, and uh, the 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 thing that echoed with me was this experience I had in 1990 as a student of John Biganese at loyal University in New Orleans, where he was teaching a class for English majors, um, the introductory class called Reading Poetry. And he had us write a fake translation. So he gave us a poem. It was a poem called Meeting at Night by Robert Browning. And he had us change all the words from English to a different English word. All the words you could change, you had to change. So you could leave, you know, V and A and that type of thing. Um, but so this this, pos- this process of transforming the text and feeling like you were seeing something similar as in the, the Browning original, but seeing something else at the same time and doing it in a new aesthetic um, was really compelling to me. And that was my first experience of anything like translation, where I actually felt like I was doing. That's that's the first time I was doing something that I can still feel like I'm doing today. So those that was that was kind of in the back of my mind and. When I decided I wanted to do with literature and with uh, foreign languages, I um, wrote him a letter and asked, uh, kind of bounced ideas off of him. And he said, well, you can go to the mountains or you can go to a city. And so I chose um, to come to start my graduate degree. When I first got to Romania, I got there via Peace Corps. So I was a Spanish teacher um, in a uh, um, 6th through 12th grade school in Jackson, Mississippi. And it... Uh, when i joined peace corps everyone told me that i was being very adventurous and i'll still to this day insist that the people who stayed at that school in jackson mississippi were the adventurous ones mm-hmm. and i was um i was escaping and as i got to romania i didn't really know very much i knew that da and nu were words for yes and no but i didn't mm-hmm. understand i didn't always get it right which one was which mm-hmm. um i didn't know how to say ceausescu uh, I didn't there a lot I didn't know I'd read one book before I got there I was originally supposed to go to Kazakhstan and but there's a problem with the paperwork and they retracted that invitation and instead sent me to Romania so I was really going in blind
0: okay well when you got there you learned Romanian I guess fairly quickly uh, do you want to tell us about that language and I guess how it works because I don't really know anything about the Romanian language
1: yeah, so they, in Peace Corps, you're given three months of training ahead of time. And half of that was language training, which was great for me. And that was the first time that I actually read any Romanian poetry. Um, it was a poem by Eminescu, who is the, the that great national poet that I was talking about that you need when you're a small language. And then Nikita Stanescu, who was um, a complicated person, a complicated body of work, but basically the, the communist era equivalent of that national poet, at least. That's what they tried to make him. Uh, and so Romanian as a language, it's a romance language. They say it's about three quarters Latin roots. And so if in Spanish it's Buenos Dias, in Romanian it's Bună Ziwa. Okay. It's a little close. Mama mm-hmm. is Mama. Papa is Tata. Right. You're not too far yeah. off. Mm. Once you learn the switches and what, what counts for what, it's not so hard to... Um, it, knowing another romance language helps. Knowing French would have helped me more than Spanish, but knowing Spanish still helped me. There's a story about this Romanian peasant guy who needs some money. So he gets on a boat and he goes to uh, Italy, works for a couple of years, you know, doing uh, farm labor. That's the thing. Comes back to his village. And when he gets there, the whole village comes out to meet him. And uh, they say, what's it like? What are Italians like? He says, Italians are beautiful people, warm, loving people. But they speak Romanian with
0: such an accent. <laughs> that's a good story. Uh, okay. Let's move on to Solenoid. It's 700 pages. It's set in Romania in the late 70s, early 80s, under the regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. The narrator is a dissatisfied schoolteacher who frequently gets lice. It features anti-death protest movements, levitating beds and buildings, mysterious libraries, the Voynich manuscripts. Andre over at the Untranslated called it the greatest surrealist novel ever written, Could you try to give us a bit of the setup of the novel and maybe a little bit about that historical context of this time in Romania?
1: So this is, as you said, this is the sensible diary um, of this disgruntled um, Romanian teacher. He teaches Romanian literature uh, in the high school section of a school that also includes an elementary section. He is writing a record of his anomalies, he says, around chapter eight or nine. So we um, we learn that he is a frustrated poet, that he had an experience when he presented his work. Um, he presented a poem called The Fall to this renowned um, literary workshop, essentially. And he got panned, um, so the, the line, someone says, someone in the workshop says something like, you know, can you imagine shooting for a hundred and only hitting six? <laughs> so then um, we, so he's not writing a novel, that's what he says. He's writing the, like the record of his anomalies. And so what he writes is this the strange things that have happened to him in his life. And these begin to center around um, a series of ideas of um, third versus fourth dimension, um, clues to being able to escape out of the, the world that you're in into a, a different world you can barely imagine. Uh, the process of interpreting signs and uh, clues and codes, um, finding these, whether or not they, they exist or not, something you, know, you get a, it, it it smells a little bit like pension at times, pinchon. Um the historical context, as you mentioned, is this uh period of um it's not as bad as the late 80s when there was um really like really desperate times in uh, Romania, um, but it's got this kind of crimey feel to it. Uh, Bucharest is a city of infinite sorrows. Um, there's kind of weird medical things that happen. Um, there's a lot of vignettes of historical moments from other time periods that um, fill out the, some of the, the narrative scenes and give more poignancy to the, the contemporary or what counts as contemporary works. Um, but yeah, it's it's a book that's fairly clearly rooted in, in this um, period in the in the mid seventies.
0: The novel goes down so many rabbit holes. I found myself constantly Googling stuff and reading other books while I was reading this one. As a translator, was it a hard narrative to get your head around and translate into English?
1: It wasn't necessarily those hard for me to get my head around the narrative. Um, there are a lot of things. Uh, lot of references like it's just packed full of references Mm -hmm. and some of these were difficult for me to track down uh there were there were some that i didn't realize were actual people until after i finished translating and retranslating the book um which is always a very strange feeling to realize that there's this character that's been on there for 40 pages and you suddenly learn that he's actually a real person Mm -hmm. um there was also some there's a series of references that I, I was struggling with but I had a great advantage because the French translator Laura Inkle uh, has a wonderful blog in which she is always talking about her own trips through the various rabbit holes her own experiences translating solenoid and she's someone I'm in contact with anyway um, and uh, so her research was posted out there online and I could use that to help my own work and this is amazing. Um, because uh she you know she found this one this one reference that popped up a couple of times to um Dagmar Rotluft. um i had no idea who this you know confused danish writer might be um and her, she was the one that tracked this down and found the um the place where this uh this fictional person comes from that was someone who i thought was real and turned out to be fictional the opposite already already told you about
0: Yes, I feel like this book does deserve its own little uh, Wikipedia or whatever you want to call it, um, just in terms of those references, because there's just so many of them. That might be in the works. We'll see. Perfect. The author himself, Katarescu, how much involvement did he have in the project? In this
1: direct involvement in the manuscript, just a normal amount. Um, So I had, I think I did three rounds of queries with him. Where I sent him just lists of things and asked him to explain uh, what was going on or to confirm my impressions, uh, he's very, very accessible. He usually responds to me within um, a number of hours, if you know, at most a day. Mm-hmm. And he's a very um, uh, understanding of what translation is like. He published a book of uh, translations of Bob Dylan lyrics. And so he un- understands the the problems of working across languages, and like, like most people do. Well, in when you come from a language with thirty million speakers, like Romanian, um, folks are much more attuned to what translation is like and to what moving across languages works like. So, yeah, Cuatroescu has been um, he's a uh, been a very supportive part of the whole process.
0: I hate to use the word polymath because I think it's overused, but. I get the feeling that Cartarescu is somebody who knows something about everything. And a lot of the references in this book, are, you know, really resonate with Western readers, especially because he seems like he's all over these kind of obscure Western references as well.
1: Yeah, no, he's, he's incredibly Mm -hmm. well-read. You know, he uh, grew up without a lot of material resources, but with a a huge desire for literature. And uh, he has, he's known for, the thousands and thousands of books he's read, this, this really encyclopedic knowledge of all kinds of people living and dead that extends not only to literature, but also to mathematics and um, science. He's fascinated by insects. Um, he uh, is also known as having one of the largest vocabularies of, en- of anyone that anyone has ever met. Um, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll, I'll repeat it anyway, that he and his sister used to compete when they were kids to see how much of the dictionary they could memorize. (laughs) They would just list the words back and forth to each other with their definitions. If it's not true, it's, you know, entrovato. Wow.
0: Okay. That's pretty exciting. With his other work, I know you've worked on blinding. Have you read some of his other books as well? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I've I've read
1: around in his works. Um, Like I said, he was the the big name when I first got into Romanian literature
0: because mm. i know he's got a new book coming out as well i think next year but so is he somebody who you see being translated more in english now that this work is out
1: oh i certainly hope so yeah i certainly hope so uh there's a lots of his work that needs to be translated that hasn't been done mm. there's lots in french spanish and german already those th- those languages have been more conscientious about translating him uh his swedish translator his norwegian translator his dutch translator all are are assiduous in what they do. When the, I think you're talking about the book Deodoros, the new mm, novel yeah. that he has out. Um mm. well, also his Italian translator Bruno is is also very um uh, been working at the been mining the gold from this vein for a long time. Um, but the when he announced, when Cartorescu announced on Facebook that he had just finished Theodoros, the um uh, his Dutch translator was the one who wrote oh thanks mirish now you give me more to do just what i needed <laughs> they, were, they were laughing about it so
0: yeah with this book it's obviously a very large book and in terms of i guess getting this project up and running i know that there was a grant involved but you want to tell us a bit about that process of of deep vellum uh getting behind this work and and the grant process
1: uh yeah i mean the grant process is easier to explain it's very straightforward the national endowment for the arts has translation grants um and uh i applied for one and i got one um the uh uh these these competitions are held every year and it's it's if you have a publisher for the work that makes your case a lot stronger so it was helpful that i already had the book under on contract with deep vellum um i i resisted um translating uh this book i kind of deflected as much as i could when when, uh, it was will that came will from will evans the, uh, the director of Deep Vellum, um, he was the one that came with the project to me because he had been hearing about Myrcia and New Blinding and um, was really excited about about publishing and really wanted to make this a, a big splash for Deep Vellum. And he's been absolutely true to his word and working with him and with, with the rest of his team, with Sarah and Walker and everybody else um, at Deep Vellum, they've been just really terrific and really supportive.
0: In terms of Orbitor, that trilogy, do you think we'll see the second two books in English anytime?
1: It, I hope so. I hope so. There's, um, it was more satisfying to translate Solenoid from that perspective. When I translated uh, the first volume of Orbitor, the I didn't get to see it all come together, but in Solenoid, which is about as long as the trilogy, the trilogy might be a smidge longer than than Solenoid. But uh more or less Solenoid is as long as the trilogy. The uh y- you get to see the, the amazing convergence of all these different motifs, these patterns of imagery, these obsessions, all these things come together towards the end. And uh and the the, the resolution of the book is completely mind-blowing. Um, I've seen people say that they actually were were you know, emotionally moved and um, cried by the end of the lines, which Um, It's just very satisfying that somebody else was as deeply involved in the book as as I was
0: translating it. I have to say the last 100 pages of this book were probably some of the most satisfying 100 pages of a novel I've read in a very long time. And he does bring everything together in such a fantastic way, but I don't want to even hint at what's (laughs) going to happen. (laughs) But yeah, no, it is fantastic. For readers out there, what do you think is the selling point of this book? What do you think would be the one thing that you would say to them to go out and pick this book up?
1: Uh, I mean, if you are someone who is, um, who is looking for something beyond what you usually experience, if you're, and I don't mean just in terms of literary value, but if I, I think this book resonates most with people who. Um, Resonate with its themes, which are you know moving beyond the world that you can see. The sense that there's something more than the uh, the everyday literal reality. In the case of the narrator, this reality is him kind of shuttling back and forth between his house and his uh, job, um, and just having the sense that you know as as he's looking at a, at a um, book on the train, that literary experience is so intense for him, even as he's in, in the in this quotidian. Um, dull experience. That's, that literature seems to be promising him a portal to someplace else. There's a beautiful moment in the book where he is, the narrator is reading this about a um, um, I think he's reading about Raskolnikov. I, I think he's reading about mm-hmm. St. Petersburg and he can't really shake the feeling that um, when he puts his head down into the book, uh, this reader in St. Petersburg is lifting his head up from a different book and is reading about this narrator on a train in Bucharest, moving back and forth, and then mm-hmm. so this that that feeling of you know the 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 real world um, slipping through our fingers and giving way to this other world is uh, I think an instinct that some people have. Some people have this this um, this question in their minds. This they're kind of seeking in that way. I think those are the folks that would like this book. Also, if you just want surprises and beauty and um, and real narrative satisfaction. This book, for me, does it more than blinding. Blinding, I think, is incredibly pyrotechnic and um beautiful and overwhelming in its own way. But it's also a book from, I guess, twenty years before uh, this book was written. Uh, this book was published. And Carterescu himself has said that this was the work of a mature writer. Um, and it does It does feel like that. Nothing feels gratuitous in this book. Everything is satisfying. Everything builds and um, delivers.
0: Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Can I ask you what you're working on at the moment?
1: Yeah, I'm working on a, a study of a Romanian translation of this really important book of anthropology, um, Catherine Ver- Verdery's book, on National Ideology Under Socialism. This was Translated into Romanian just a couple of years after it was published, nineteen eighty, published nineteen ninety-two in English, and then translated very soon afterwards, maybe four years later. Um, but it was a study of literary politics under um, under Ceausescu, and it was published right at a time when all of that was being reevaluated. And Reddy writes an introduction to this to the Romanian version that is attempts to guide readers into a, a more nuanced reading. But uh, the whole situation makes the translation completely overdetermined um, by the revision, the desire to kind of heal the wounds of the communist period, that this translation is just really alive and, and vibrant. So I'm writing a study of that. Um, and I've got other other things in that line that I'm working on.
0: Okay. With fiction translations, are there any books that you want to see out there in the world that aren't currently translated?
1: All of them. I'd like all of them be translated. <laughs> <laughs> um, or I could say I'd like none of them to be translated and just for folks to, um, to, uh, learn Romanian and, um, put me out of a job. <laughs> it would be the these, the, the, there's so many really powerful works. The one that's really, um, close to my heart right now is a book, um, called, uh, on uh, Um, this is a dictionary of names, of baby names, basically. And it's a, uh, by uh, Mircea Oria Simoniescu. This is a dictionary of names, but with every name, there's an entry that tells a story or makes a joke about the name or offers up an image or somehow complicates things, gives a perverse etymology or something like that. But the book is arranged like a dictionary. Uh, it's the kind of book that's really impossible to um, convince people to publish and, um, I know I haven't been successful, but it's such a crazy, wonderful, um, imaginative book that I wish it was out there.
0: Okay. And one more question on translation before we get on to other things. For people who speak English and who aren't, I guess, uh, great at languages, can you give any hints, I guess, to learning a new language and be able to, to read in a different language?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's the, the 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 traditional ways to do that are um, to fall in love with somebody who uh, prefers a different language, <laughs> or to um, to drink a lot with people who prefer to use a different language. That's how I learned Spanish. I learned Spanish by drinking um, with uh, with a really good group of uh, friends from Mexico a number of years ago. I mean, I studied in school too, but it was really the um, there's a certain tequila called uh, Romero's Widow, La Viuda de Romero, that um, was my gateway into um, Spanish proficiency. Um, I mean, the I think just following your curiosity. So I know a friend of mine who is, uh, Alex Zucker, he's a great translator from Czech. Um, he read uh, um, one of Michael Henry Himes translations of Kundera, the Book of Laughter and Forgetting. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment in that book when uh, a narrator is walking across Vince's last squ- um, square and he sees this, it's like 2 AM in the morning and he sees this guy sitting on a bench in the square, just vomiting his guts out. And the narrator says, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it was that joke that uh, he read in translation. And then he decided he was going to go to Prague and he was going to learn to speak Czech and he's done it you know and it's that's become his his uh livelihood now Wow! so yeah. follow i would say follow that um follow the the sense of ending up with people who know exactly what you mean
0: okay very good well my sister's done the done the falling in love with someone who speaks another language it's worked for her so there you go oh yeah what what language spanish yeah uh-huh. so yeah Handy. there you go yeah. Good to know. Okay. Well, I'll put that on my dance card. Let's talk about your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you?
1: Uh I mean, opening the world of literature, I think. So I grew up in a house with um two uh German professors. One was an ex-German professor who actually became an Episcopal priest, but I was always surrounded by books that I couldn't read. I didn't um they tried to teach me, my parents tried to teach me German, but they um but I refused. It was my one rebellion <laughs> as a as a kid. So, um, just, I, I, that set me on a path towards being kind of curious and open to the sounds of the language. I think when I got to college was really when things opened up for me. I mean, I, I, guess I read a lot of beatniks in high school. Um, and then I read, I met Allen Ginsberg. He came to my school. Wow. Um, and, uh, I, he patted me on the head at one point. I'm sure he would have done more if I'd wanted to, um, <laughs> not trying to flatter myself, I, I think it's a fairly <laughs> low bar. But I, the real, the, the first um, literature that really grabbed me was um, García Lorca, Federico García Lorca's poetry, the romancero gitano. Um, I was just fascinated by this, by the sounds of his poetry for a long time. In, in college, I'm still reading like Gary Snyder, I read a lot of him, um, Rip Rap, uh, Turtle Island, those kind of books, um, Four Poems for for Robin, One of them. Um, But uh, yeah, it was really the Lorca. And I ended up taking a course on Lorca at one point and reading his plays. And I I still am fascinated by him. I love the Jack Spicer book after Lorca um, as a way of doing translations and interpolating his own works and his own letters to Lorca and letters from Lorca, um, uh, disowning the works that Spicer himself is doing, that type of thing.
0: Mm, Very cool. Okay. What books are you currently reading, or have you recently enjoyed, or you're looking forward to?
1: Uh let's see. Um, I I read so much for work that I actually do more music for <laughs> for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, right now I'm just finishing teaching Don Quixote. We're, we're right at the end. I'm um, going to teach the. Uh, uh, it's not a spoiler to say that he dies at the end. I mean, after 450 years, we should all yeah. know that already.
0: Too soon. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, and then after that, I get to t- teach Tristam Shandy, which is another book that I love. Um, uh, it's you know two hundred pages before of his autobiography before he's even born.
0: Mm.
1: And let's see the the last book that I read for pleasure. I can't even remember the last book I read for pleasure. For pleasure, I'm listening to an album by Spanky Wilson that I love.
0: Okay, Spanky Wilson. Fill me yeah. nice. he he sounds like a jazz musician.
1: Uh, yeah, she. she uh, okay. Uh, She had a couple of albums come out at the end of the 1960s and then kind of fell out of obscurity, but continued to gig like crazy all through France and Germany. She's from Philadelphia originally. Mm. She's called Spanky because she got spanked a lot as a kid. (laughs) And uh, eventually she ended up with a producer in England and he in like 19, uh, 2016, they put out an album called I'm Thankful, which is just the best uh, the best i don't know but the really great recent um funk very james brownish you know uh and she's her voice is incredibly strong Excuse as <coughs> yeah, opposed to my voice at this moment her voice is incredibly strong and her intonation is amazing um so yeah i'm loving that album
0: okay well i'll put it on in the car on the way to work sounds good do it yeah we'll take a quick break here on beyond the zero we're speaking with sean cotter This episode of Beyond Zero is brought to you by Cormac McCarthy's first new novel in 16 years, The Passenger. It's available now through Pan Macmillan, and you can get it everywhere. can't judge a book by looking at its cover, oh, can't you see We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Sean's Desert Island Books.
1: Am I not allowed to do the ones where it's like, you know, how to build a sustainable boat out of palm trees (laughs) and sand?
0: (laughs) Well, you sure can if you like to. (laughs) I mean, that's
1: got to be up there, right? For sure, yeah. How how to contact other people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... Some of my books, I was thinking about this. I love this book. Uh, I'm in my office, so I've got a lot of them around me right now. Um, This book, you can't see me. Um, I mean, you can see me, but no one else can. So Poems of Arab Andalusia is this collection of translations, second-hand translations. So they're done from Spanish translations of works in Arabic from um, eh, the 13th century, something like that. Kola Franson is the translator, and she does this amazing, amazing uh, works. These, uh, she really brings out this, this. I mean, this, 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 this collection of poems was influential for Garcia Lorca and a lot of the other um, uh, of his generation. Um, so she brings out those qualities in these old poems from Arabic, um, the qualities that those poets, those modernist poets liked so much. So i do that. I'd also do this uh, narrow road to the interior, Matsuo Basho's um, travel log, his autobiographical um, travel writing, translated by Sam Hamill, who does an amazing job with that as well. Uh, this is the premier romancero Gitano. This is the, uh, the Garcia Lorca that I take. Lucian Blaga is this uh, Romanian poet, modernist poet who, if you put him and Yeats and Lorca in a bar together they would have a lot to talk about um as long as you're drinking wine and not beer uh lydia davis i love um another book called ink dark moon that i love invisible cities was a was like my go-to book Calvino's invisible cities for a long time that was my favorite book if anyone ever asked me um but now i'm thinking about a book called shukas which is uh sofia Nakovska's um novel um kind of its setting is a little bit like the Magic Mountain, but it's a lot shorter. Um, but it's a beautiful consideration of nationalism at the beginning of um, the 20th century. So, I don't know, did I hit enough of those desert island books? Yeah, What's for sure. Yeah, no, that and... sounds
0: like a fairly good desert island to me.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to get like a nice big book. Maybe I'll take Solenoid just so I could tear it apart and make it into a roof. <laughs> so I can you know, have a shelter from it.
0: It's a yeah. good idea. It's a very good yeah, idea. Yeah, shelter but, from, the, um, from the stars. <laughs> well, there's enough pages in it, so it'll do the right. job. Yeah. All right. Well, I should let you go. Thank you so much for chatting. Before we wrap it up, do Absolutely. you want to tell us? Yeah,
1: it's a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: Do you want to tell us where we can go and buy Solenoid? And also, if we want to get in touch with you, can we get in touch with you anywhere?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. So, um I mean, my, my email is um, sean.cotter at utdallas.edu. Um, I uh, I lurk. I don't. I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm not on. Uh, I'm lurking on Instagram, but I don't really use it. Oh, and you get the. You can buy the book from the publisher, uh, or um, bookshops.org the, are your online spots, and of course all the usual places you can, you can find Solenoid.
0: Yeah, I've been very happy to see it almost everywhere at the moment, and people are talking about it. Congratulations again, because it's just such a great book, and I'm so glad to see it in English, and I highly recommend it.
1: It's wonderful to hear that. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been lovely talking with you. Yeah, and you. Thanks once again to Sean Cotter. I highly recommend Solenoid pick up a copy today from Deep Vellum. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode next week.